Welcome. We are going to have another fun episode. This is number two. We had one already that was uh, about the war in heaven. And that's crazy as it, enough as it is to even think about a war in heaven. But tonight we want to dig a little bit deeper. And this is number two of 52 presentations that sweep through history from a biblical standpoint. And before we can even get to Genesis 1, we really have to look at um, the, the context of this world around us, that we are in a war zone and that evil has a source and that there is other beings involved um, than just us. We're not alone. And so we're going to look tonight at angels and, you know, this war a little bit more, why it happened, what happened, and see what the ramifications are for us. So if you look online, um, you'll find that there are a lot of weird ideas, you know, about angels. And yet the Bible, the one source that we should be going to for our answers, we just, most people don't. It it clearly pulls back the curtain. It clearly explains angels, their origin. Um, You know, everything that we need to know is right there. But people, they got all kinds of whacked out ideas. And and some of the pictures kind of say it all. Um, There's fanciful, sultry women with, you know, beautiful wings and sexy poses with sexy dresses and warrior-like shields and bodices. (laughs) It's really quite, um, yeah, eye-catching and pretty, but dumb. I mean, we really would like to see stuff like this, but that's not how this whole thing works. But then we've got these cutesy Cupid versions and um, we just basically got an Im- immense fascination with angels. We have them as knickknacks and garden decorations. I saw this one online with a, a pink dress. It was a little knickknack thing that for $74.90, you could have this to beautify your home or better yet, protect your home. <laughs> I'm sorry for all those of you that think you can protect your home by having a knickknack. It doesn't work like that. There is no no power conveyed, no safety conveyed by, you know, beads, rabbit foots, knickknacks, nothing, not, none of this. That's not how it works. The Bible is very clear about that. You can even get online and watch um, shows, TV shows, you know, Angels in America. Uh, basically, y- you get out there and you look around and it's anything but what God says about angels. People... It's really bizarre and alarming that people will not go to the Bible to inquire about angels, but they will eagerly take any people's words for it on this topic. But scripture is our only safeguard. And, you know, it's one thing to think some little knickknacks going to, you know, protect your home, but it gets dangerous out there. You know, the one thing I saw online was, quote, how to connect with your angels, comma, spirit. They capitalized both of those. I don't know what for, but, you know, they they got everything from, you know, your angel guides, spirit guides. Um, there's a lot of weird things out there. And again, you have to be really careful. Well, why do we have to be careful? Why can't we trust, you know, other people and what they're saying? Why should we only trust God's word? Well, again, because God says that there was a war in heaven. So that means, well, and and we'll get into a little bit later about, you know, a third of the angels fell. So that means you've got really intelligent beings, in particular Satan and all of his angels, who, like we saw in the last presentation, are capable of turning, he's capable of turning himself into an angel of light, Second Corinthians says, um, 11, uh, verse 15. So he, he's capable of turning himself into a beautiful being, um, you know, one that's attractive that you wouldn't recognize as like some, you know, hideous thing that like, oh, that's Satan. No, nope, you're not going to recognize him. They're capable of t- taking human form. Uh, other verses in Second Corinthians eleven say that uh, he's using, you know, these beings um, or people to preach false things. 
people can be impressed, uh, be led, their thoughts. If you're not guarding your heart and mind and filling yourself with the word of God, you can easily be led into wrong ideas and preach wrong um, things. You know, think about uh, uh, Genesis, the third chapter, where basically you have Satan using a snake to tempt Adam and Eve. Well, just Eve. Um, Adam wasn't by her side at that point. And it says in verse one, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So she responds back in verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's a lot we could unpack there, but basically take away the idea that they can take human form, they can inhabit a creature or or speak through a creature. They can speak through a human being, um, like we saw Second Corinthians eleven um, in the for, in the previous presentation, but also, um, for example, Peter, a godly man, um, one that was following God, you know, Jesus, learning from him day by day, uh, listening to his words. But in Matthew sixteen verse twenty two, um, and there's other passages where where it tells the same story. It. Um, he says to, well, Jesus is basically telling the disciples what's going to happen to him. He's going to end up dying on a cross, you know, that type of thing. He's, going, he's pulling back the, in the curtain and telling what's going to happen in the future. And Peter says, no, I mean, f- far be it for that to happen to you. He, and Satan was trying to use him to discourage um, Satan, uh, discourage Jesus. And Jesus had to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, talk about embarrassing. He in front of all the disciples, he basically says, you're demon possessed at the moment and says, get away from me, Satan. Now, it doesn't mean, I mean, you got to be careful to not assume that this means he's like possessed in this totally owned, giving himself over to the dark side. You know, he's a done, gone, you know, um, uh, re- not redeemable person. You can easily start entertaining satanic thoughts just by watching TV shows that put the wrong ideas in you, listening to people who put the wrong ideas in you, music. There's a lot of different ways. Satan's not at a loss for ways to fool or tempt you. And again, he's a lot smarter than you and I are. He's He lives in another, him and his angels, they live in another dimension. They've been around for centuries after centuries, and who knows how long before our world was created. They, we're no match for them. So if you think you can just, with your intelligence, discern, you know, what's uh, right or wrong that's being told to you by other people or by um, things you're reading, think again, because... Eve was deceived, Peter was deceived, and a whole lot of people. I mean, if you look down through the Bible's history, you're going to see a lot of examples where people went astray from ideas or things that were told to them by, um, you know, other people that were basically being used by Satan. So, um, what does the Bible say uh, you know, about angels. I mean, we looked at last time about some of the, the things that the bad angels are doing. And just to review really quick, in case you didn't hear that presentation, I encourage you to go back to, you know, number one and, and you know, listen to all that. But we saw um, in Second Corinthians 11, um, Job 1 and 2, um, Job 4, Mark 5, you know, you can check out those passages. We found out that they're preaching, they're deceiving, they're killing or hurting they're causing natural disasters, um, depression, or the idea that you're not measuring up, emotional trauma or cutting. So and let me just stop and make a disclaimer again. 
I'm not saying that all depression is from Satan. There's various reasons for depression, but some of it is because you got to understand he's out to destroy you physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, any way he can. So if he can bring up, you know, past things, stupid things you've done or said, if he can tear you down and make you feel worthless or that God doesn't love you, um, there's no hope for your future, he's going to do it. So, um, yes, some depression, some things like that um, are from Satan. So we have a basic idea what the bad ones are doing, but let's broaden the picture some more and, and try to get an idea again of, you know, how many there are, what are the good ones doing? So Daniel 7 verse 10, it says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Now this is came from before God. Uh, so when, when God came down, this is about Mount, um, sorry, not Mount Sinai. This is um, one of the times where the Bible indicates what's going to happen in the judgment or in the future when, um, you know, the books are opened. And so the, the Daniel 7 says a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, meaning before God, and a thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was was seated and the books were opened. So he's not saying, this is Daniel, and he's, he's not saying that there was exactly a thousand thousands or 10,000 times 10,000. It's just really big numbers of people. That's the best way he can describe what he was seeing. But they're attending God when the court is seated and the books are opened and judgment takes place. And Obviously, there's a, not only a lot of angels, but they're very interested in this judgment. And it's a fascinating topic to dig into. It's not as scary as you think. Um, it's, it's good news. Everything in the Bible is, is good news in one way or another. Um, but we're going to delve into the judgment in a different uh, episode. But that's um, Daniel 7 is one of the examples of where there's a lot of angels. Deuteronomy 33. 3 verse 2 where the Lord came down on Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments and I should specify re-gave the Ten Commandments the we had as a human race the Ten Commandments before this but we had lost a significant amount of the knowledge of God um, while they were in you know 400 years in a very pagan um, nation they they just lost a lot of the knowledge that God had given the human race so God had to re-give um, the Ten Commandments. So this um, verse says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, which is just another mountain. He shone forth from Mount Paran, another mountain, and he came with ten thousands, ten thousands of his saints. So there's a lot of them um, indicated there. Hebrews 12, 22 is another passage. Um, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. So, unnumberable. There's like lots of them. So, in multiple ways, the Bible indicates there was a lot of beings. Well, what exactly are they doing? Um, it's getting kind of long for one episode. We're at 13 minutes here. And I know you can continue and just listen right through to the end, but I'm going to pause here and say, why don't you um, go back, look up a few of these verses, review um, you know, what we've talked about tonight, and ask yourself, are there any ways in my life where I'm taking other people's words for things, or I'm taking what I see or read online, um, in TV shows or books and music, where am I getting my knowledge about God and angels and all of these topics, where am I getting my knowledge from? Who am I trusting? And start asking yourself, what do I really know on this topic? What does God say on this topic? And just reread these verses and kind of um, wrap your mind around, maybe I do need to investigate more what God says instead of... Um, you know, people have all these experiences out there where they, you know, think they've died and come back to life, or they think they've seen things or felt things or heard, you know, saw an angel. Um, can I trust those things? Well, we're going to delve into that. So 
Let's stop there for now, and we will pick this up um, in the next segment. All right, let's start another segment here. So in the first segment, we saw how many angels are, that there's a lot of them, and that people are prone to, to really look to other people for explanations of things in the spiritual realm. And we got a lot of weird ideas about angels out there, but that we should really go to God's word alone because there's a great danger in thinking you can figure this out on your own against uh, beings that are way smarter than you, lived way longer than you, and live in a different dimension than you. So now we're going to look at, you know, we, the good angels, because we delved into what the bad angels are doing. Um, what are the good angels doing? Well, you've probably heard about guardian angels. So one thing for sure, yes, they are protecting us. And I want to go to a really cool story in the Bible. If you uh, want to turn there, it's Daniel 6, which is kind of right in the middle of the Bible. Um, you got like Psalms and, you know, Proverbs, Isaiah, um, Ezekiel, Daniel. It's, it's all kind of right there in the middle. So Daniel 6. And we're going to kind of summarize the first part of it, but you can, you know, you're welcome to read that later. But if you read verse one, um, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three govern and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, um, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king might suffer no loss. So, Basically, there's this King Darius, and this the kingdom of Babylon is huge. I mean, it covers a vast area, number of countries were swallowed up into this. And there was a lot of um, people that King Darius used to, uh, you know, to help govern this vast area. And Daniel was over basically everybody. And this made people jealous. Um, partly they would have been jealous of anything anybody put over top of them, but partly too, you know, he was a Jew. He was one of the conquered nations and, um, the people, some of the other governors, they just wanted first place. So in verse four, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not, not find charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault in him. So they're looking for any way to take this guy down that they can come up with. And they're having trouble figuring this out. So they they do figure out a way to get him in trouble. And if you skip over to um, verse 13, you're basically coming into the story where they thought, okay, we got this. We're going to tell the king, um, let's make this rule that um, nobody can pray to any other God, but basically you, they have to pray to you for 30 days. And, you know, it's just one of a million different laws coming before him, you know, and basically he just signed it. Yeah, 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 whatever. You know, he's not thinking anything about this, signed it into, um, into place. And there's a unusual law about the Medes and Persians. Once they sign something into law, you can't alter it. You can't just like, get rid of this later. So when you pick up the story in verse 13, after they've gotten the king to sign all this, and, um, you know, so they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, see, they know that he's a, he's, you know, a Jew and they don't, they don't like him for multiple reasons. Um, one of the captives from Judah does not show due regard for you, O king, or for that decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. In other words, he prays to God three times a day. And in verse 14, all of a sudden, the king realizes what's he, that he's been snookered. And he realizes that they've set him up. And, he, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He's trying everything he can, but, you know, they, they come back to him later and they're like, well, you know, no, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Do you know how angry he must have been with them and how slimy these guys are at this point? I'd be so afraid to try to pull this off with him. 
Because if this doesn't work, man, you know, you're up a crick. But anyway, um, so skip down to verse 17. You know, the, the king has no way around this. There's nothing he can do about it. And he, he has to throw, um, well, in verse 16, you know, the, he, the king finally gives the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions, which is how they were going to, you know, get rid of anybody that um, disobeyed the law. And he says, the king says to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. He knew enough. He, I mean, he knew that Daniel served God and he was okay with that. Um, unlike the rest of the people, you know, uh, the rest of those governors, he, he actually not only valued Daniel, he trusted Daniel. He, um, he liked the fact that he was an honest and upright person that served as God. And he had just enough faith to believe that God would deliver him. But as we'll see going forward, he's still afraid that, you know, he's going to find him dead in the morning. So the king goes back to his palace. He spent the night fasting and and it says no musicians were brought before him and his sleep went from him. He spends a sleepless night wondering what's going on with Daniel. And verse 19, he rose early in the morning and he went went in haste to the den of lions. Now, when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. I mean, hear it in his voice, traumatized, hoping that he's still alive. In a lamenting voice, he cried out, The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? He's just, you know, teetering on that edge of not knowing whether, you know, is this God really going to save him? I mean, I I, I really have been quite convinced of, you know, that God sees and answers prayers based on what I've seen of Daniel in his life. But I don't know, man. And verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found in him because he believed in his God. Oh, there's so many things that we could talk about. And I've really read more than I intended to. The only real point you need to know is verse 22, where he says, Daniel said, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. He apparently saw the angel. Sometimes we get to see our guardian angel. Sometimes, most times I would say we don't. But he um, was well aware of the fact that he his life had, his life had been preserved by an angel. And so which is not what happened to the rest of them. And you can read what happens to the rest of those guys. And boy, I just I want to delve into all of this. Um, you know, because Daniel ends up um, getting, you know, freed and the king gives the command and, he, and all those that accused him their, and their wives and their children, the whole kit and caboodle gets thrown in and, and they get um, destroyed. And there's a lot of instances throughout the Bible where the Bible seems, um, uh, you know, very violent. Sometimes it's because of people, the culture, and it's not like God ordered this. But there are passages in the Bible that do make it seem, um, you know, like, wow, I'm not quite sure I understand that. We're going to dig into a lot of those in these 52 presentations so that you have a real, real firm and comfortable grasp on who God is and whether you can trust him. So, all right, let's 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 jump forward because, again, I don't want to spend too much time. The point of this is that there are angels, good angels, and that they are um, protecting us. So we touched on this in the first presentation, like how many bad ones are there? Well, we don't know the exact number of how many there were in the beginning that were good, and how many that fell, but we know the proportion because Revelation 12, 4, um, and it it says his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, we don't have to, um, we don't have time to pull this apart. The Bible interprets for you who this dragon is. Um, It's Satan. The Bible uses a lot of symbolism to, there's a good reason why, and we'll get into that again another time. But the Bible often uses symbolism, and you can trace those symbols um, through, and it, and it will it'll explain itself. Um, and 
you know, the Bible interprets what the stars mean and that, that we can know that those are angels. But we don't have time to go into all that. But what, what you should take away from this is that this means that of all that vast number of beings that were um, in heaven, serving God, um, and enjoying life, um, there's a lot of indication that there's a, uh, there's a lot of wonderful things that, um, that they and we are, were capable of doing before sin. They, one being was able to convince a lot of other intelligent beings something that they didn't previously think. So they knew God at one point. They were happy at one point. And yet he was able to convince a third of them to think completely differently than they thought before. And so they not only turned against God, but were kicked out of heaven. And now they're working very deliberately to try to get convince you to think differently about God, to view him in a wrong light, which is exactly what he did to Eve. He, he basically, in so many words, said, no, 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 God, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows that the minute you eat of it, you're going to become better, more intelligent, different than you are now. You're going to become like God. He's been telling this, he's been peddling this lie from day one. He said it to the rest of the angels. You're not experiencing everything that, that you could be experiencing. God's holding out on you. He's selfish. I've got the best way. There's freedom that you can have that um, you're not having in this government that God has. Whatever way he spun it, he's been peddling this concept all along. And you got to be careful because he has a lot more success with us, us puny little humans, than, um, e than even the angels. And yet he convinced a third of the angels to turn against God. So um, we're going to look at Ezekiel 28. Oh, man. Um, 12 minutes in. How about we stop there for now? I want to encourage you again. Don't just, you know, go through this entire podcast um, quickly and just move right on to the next one. You know, maybe you're finding it so interesting that you're tempted to, but um, 10 to 15 minutes a day, you know, listen to this, go back and look at the passages in review, think it through, take note of what it's saying, maybe jot down questions you've got. You can always, um, you know, put questions in through this, you know, podcast and maybe we can answer some of them. But um, take some time and dig into Daniel 6, you know, or some of the other ones so far that we've talked about. Okay, and then we'll come back and, and get into Ezekiel and what more um, we can find out about this war and what Satan and his angels were thinking. Because the Bible takes the time to really pull this apart and show you what was going on. All right, well, join us for the next segment. All right, welcome. We're going to dig into another fun section of angels and this war in heaven. Tonight, I want to look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, because again, it's fascinating how much the Bible shares about um, Satan, what he was thinking. You know, God does, doesn't want you to just be ignorant on this topic. He wants you to understand what happened. So if you want to look this up, it's Ezekiel 28. It's just before Daniel. And let's, uh, let's look at this because this, I don't know about you, but one of my first questions when I think about this topic is uh, why? I mean, heaven, everybody wants to be in heaven, unless you think that heaven is just a sitting on a cloud with a harp, which is what I used to think when I was young. I thought, um, I'm not sure I want to go to heaven if, if that's all it is. Uh, trust me, that's not all heaven is. It's an amazing, amazing place, amazing universe out there. There's surprisingly a lot of things that we can um, to know about this when you really start piecing things together. Um, anyway, but if you've got an amazing place to live and, you know, a body unlike ours, no sin and, and you know, a perfect environment, 
why would you be unhappy? I mean, there was a time when he was happy, when Satan was happy and holy. The Bible says he was perfect until he sinned. So, like, why? Anyway, let's look at this because it really pulls things apart. Now, if you were to start from the beginning of uh, chapter 28, you would you would think that we are talking um, just about a normal person uh, for the most part. There's a few things that make it sound like, well, maybe, maybe it's talking about Satan, but it's really talking about a person. And that's because one of the principles um, that we're going to learn about the Bible is that often the Bible will be talking about or to well, let me say it this way. God might be talking to two groups of people or about two things at the same time. So let me explain. Um, sometimes he's talking to local people, um, it's something that pertains to them or that's about to happen to them, perhaps. And then in the same passage or chapter, he may weave in and out things that are very specifically um, now referring to people or things to come, you know, for different time periods. It's one of the most amazing things. You know, we learned in the first episode, the Bible will interpret itself either in that passage, in the surrounding verses, or somewhere else in the Bible. But this is another um, uh, thing that about the Bible that is good to understand is that there's a dualism often because God uses symbolism or just weaving in and out, talking to different groups of people. So if you start at the beginning of chapter 28, there really is a king of, well, was a king of Tyre. There really was a city Tyre. If you look it up um, online, you can see the modern day city. And if you look at some of the pictures, you can see in the water, the pillars and stuff from the ancient city of Tyre. It's really quite fascinating. It's one of the oldest cities um, that we know of. It's north of Israel and it's mentioned in the Bible very early on post-flood. And so it's it's really got a fascinating history to it. But um, as we go through the chapter 28, you switch, you'll see a switch. And that's what we, we're going to see in, in verse 11, which is where we're going to pick up. So if you want to read the, the first stuff, you'll see in the beginning of the chapter that that king of Tyre, he really thought he was all that. And... Um, you know, God's rebuking him for it. Uh, that was a very wealthy city, and I'm sure he did think he was all that because, again, the people that lived post-flood lived long and were strong and intelligent. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, um, a lot of kings, a lot of power struggles, a lot of uh, power trips. Really, honest, it's just amazing to to look into that topic, um, which we'll get into when we get uh, into our post-flood presentations. But for right now, we're going to pick up with verse 11, which that section is called Lamentation for the King of Tyre, and it switches immediately to Satan. So it says in verse 11, Moreover, the word of, of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, and turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Which, let's pause there just for one second. Um, timbrels and pipes, maybe kind of a quaint way of saying it. Obviously, Satan was a very musical being. Uh, we know that music plays a big part of heaven. Um, it's used, you know, in the Bible frequently. And if, again, if you've got a really intelligent being that's highly skilled in music um, and singing, it would be who of you, to use an old-fashioned expression, um, to pay attention to the types of music that you're letting into your mind. You've got eye gates, ear gates, You've got entrances to your soul that you need to guard because Satan will plant ideas in people's minds. You can have music uplift you 
and you can have it take you down. You can have it be violent and sensual, um, put corrupt ideas in you. And I'm not here to tell you which ones. That's between you and God. But you might want to stop and consider, am I guarding my eye and ear gates? What types of things am I letting in? Am I letting my guard down with a being that is extremely musical? That's, again, trying in every way possible to take me down. All right, so verse 14. You are the anointed cherub who covers. Uh, Let me just flesh that out for a second. The Bible makes it clear that there's there's two angels, one on each side of God. Um, you can see this in a, in several different passages that describes the sanctuary, and the fact that there was um, over the mercy seat was where God was, and on either side of the mercy seat were two angels um, that were in in the immediate presence of God. So this is saying. You were the anointed cherub that covers you. He had one of the highest positions in heaven, one of the two highest positions. He was the covering cherub. God says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. That again, Bible picks up all these fascinating things and fleshes it out elsewhere. But we don't have time to go into that right at the moment. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So God didn't create him evil. He created a perfect being, but with free will, people and all beings, angels included, have the right to choose whether they want to love and worship God. So God didn't set him up for failure. He doesn't set anyone up for failure. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of fiery of the fiery stones. Let me stop there for a second. The trading stuff is picked up in multiple <clears throat> other places in the Bible. And you may not understand everything in a passage as you're reading along. That's okay. If you're curious, and again, you have those fun, yummy, marginal references, like uh, my center column, again, between the two columns, um, I can trace all those little things that have an A or B or C or D, whatever, I can trace those to other passages and kind of learn about it there. There's other really cool um, things, you you know, online, BibleGateway.com, Bible Hub, um, oh, what's that other one, Blue Bible, I think, .com. Um, there's some great resources where you can look up, you know, say a part of a verse and it'll show you, you know, where else those concepts are in the Bible. So, you know, feel free to dig into those, but just because you don't understand everything in a passage, that's okay. Get the gist of the passage and go on because the more you study, the more it's going to flesh itself out for you. Uh, Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Now we're starting to get into some of the reasons why. He stopped looking at God and all of God's beauty, and he started looking just basically at himself. Why do I need God? Why do I need to worship him? That tendency to be self-sufficient as humans and feel like, I don't need anybody else. I don't need God. I'm quite happy on my own. I remember... um, one time some, you know, some church members were going door to door, uh, just, you know, asking, you know, are there any classes you'd like, any Bible studies, different types of things that you'd be interested in, maybe health classes, smoking classes, various things, you know, just seeing what people needed or wanted. And most people said, no, we're, we're pretty good, you know, doing pretty good. Maybe now they'd have a different story because of the, you know, the anxiety and the levels of confusion going on out there. But at that point, you know, when life's going pretty good, why do I need God? And it's a tendency we tend to, to do, and, and he had he did the same thing. Uh, the rest of verse 17 says, You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and laid you before kings. Now he's starting to switch in the future of what's going to happen, um, that they might gaze on you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. 
and all who knew you among the the peoples were astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Some good news there. We'll dig into that some other time, but um, that's some of what the Bible says about what happened to Satan. But if you want to dig into another section, um, chapter 14 of Isaiah is another great section that fills this out. Let's stop there for now because that was a lot. Let's let me have you go back again, look at that section, read it through prayerfully, and just kind of stew on some of that stuff. And then we'll come back and we'll delve into Isaiah 14 next time. All right, let's start Isaiah 14. We're going to skip the first section because it deals with the king of Babylon. Again, God weaves um, in and out uh, here a little, there a little, just like hidden treasure. Um, weaving the different topics together. And so the first section is about Babylon, but then he all of a sudden switches to Lucifer, which is um, Satan's original name. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. It's fascinating that here he is weakening the nations, the Bible says. So you don't see that just in some tyrannical despot, you know, that like Stalin or, you know, some of these people that killed millions of their own people. And um, you also see him weakening the nations by weakening their moral compass, getting them, you know, more interested, like in our country, really just fat and happy, don't need God, don't need spiritual things, um, just want money, want pleasure, want adventure, whatever, you know, uh, he, that's him behind the scenes, distracting people. So let's continue verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Wow. So in our quest to understand this war in heaven and, you know, him um, somehow convincing a lot of angels to think like him and to rebel against God. The motive, deep down, really, what the, was behind it, Satan wanted God's authority and power. His, you know, the attention, the worship. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to exalt his throne above God. So, God takes a lot of trouble to make sure that we have the tools we need to understand what was going on and not leave us in the dark about this. Uh, let's see. Verse 15. Yet you, you shall be brought down to Sheol. It's another word for hell. Um, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man that made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of it, of his prisoners? So there is a really amazing ultimate end. Um, and I don't want to get into it too much right now because it would take a, several presentations. But the Bible is very clear about what's going to happen ultimately. And we saw a glimpse of it in Ezekiel 28, um, the, the good news of what actually happens to Satan, that he's going to be turned to ashes in the end. Um, here it is, we, we get to look on him. There's going to come a point when we'll look at him and, and ask, this is it, this is it, this is who this, this is who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities. Uh, we're going to get to look at him at some point. And he will be destroyed. Um, there's good news, and I'll, I'll bring it up now. Don't turn me off if you're used to um, thinking that hell goes on forever. I'm not some wackadoo that, you know, has got some wacky ideas. But the Bible, it, it's very clear if you have not been indoctrinated by um, the idea that hell is forever. Um, 
that really is a lie from Satan. It, it, it because it came up in the the dark ages. It was something the Catholic Church used, to, and I'm not bashing the Catholic Church, but it, it's something that they used to get people to fear and and um, you know basically give them money, um, get get them to obey and to believe that they needed God, um, keep people obedient. I mean, I've actually heard pastors say, uh, "Well, if I didn't have." you know, help, then people wouldn't come to church. And it's, it's really the biggest stumbling block um, that is out there for people. But you ask yourself, the, the logical question, would, would a God who would bother to die on the cross, rather than just, the easier thing would have been just wipe you out, of, wipe us, our planet out of existence. We're one little planet he has so many other beings. He's obviously capable of creating many other beings. Just wipe us out. Why would some would would a God who's who would rather die than live without us burn people forever for the sins of one lifetime? So, a seven-year-old, your ten-year-old, um, that did what particular sins? He's going to burn them forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, there are verses in the Bible that make it seem like that, but properly understood. And if you put all of them, you, you go down through the Bible and put all of them in one column that make it sound like there's hell that burns forever, and you put all the ones in another column that make it clear that, that that's not how this is, you're going to see a different story. But again, I understand if you've been brought up this way and you just superficially, you know, read the Bible without looking for any evidence to the contrary, I understand why you're going to come up with that idea. But we do, the Bible is is much better news than you um, realize. And like we've seen already in Ezekiel, I didn't really drill into it, but it says he's going to be ashes under our feet. Um, same thing with here. We're going to look at him at some point and get to examine. You know, he's not going to be off in hell somewhere with a pitchfork terrorizing people. He's got an end that he comes to. So anyway, um, that's we'll just leave it for that for now, and we'll get into that more at, at a later time. And, and again, um, hear me out. Take the chance. Enjoy, you know, these presentations and, you know, it's really the only big thing that you're going to, you know, notice that I differ with, you know, maybe many people on, but it's going to make a lot more sense to you. You're going to see God in a whole different light when you start to see that he's just and fair and that the 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 punishments, if you want to call it that, that all of us end up with um, that, that deny him ultimately is so fair and Satan's going to suffer the longest. But everything comes to an end so that you're not up in heaven, um, you know, watching cousin Bob and and mom and, um, you know, your, you know, your seven year old suffering somewhere in hell while you're trying to what? Enjoy heaven. <sighs> so illogical. Anyway. All right. So that's, um, you know, again, in a, a section that you can um, stew on Ezekiel and Ezekiel twenty-eight and Isaiah fourteen, great sections to to really examine and think through. You know, Satan's motives and why this war took place, and therefore, what kind of lies? You know, think it through. What kind of lies he probably told? You know, his angels in order to get them to rebel, and what lies he might be telling you. Again, especially if you combine it with Genesis 3 and you think about the lie that he told right out of the gate to Eve. So he's, God's holding out on you. There's more to life than what you're having. You don't need him. You can be like God. I've got a better way for you. You know, worship me is what he told Jesus. And I'll give, you know, just bend the knee to me and I'll give you everything, all the nations of this world. I'll give you all these people. You won't have to suffer and go to the cross. I'll give it all to you as if he can give it to him anyway. But all of these lies all revolve around this, this same idea. I just want you to worship me. So that's his motive. 
that's what the Bible says is um, going on behind the scenes. All right, let's see if there's anything else here we want to cover uh, tonight in this one. Um, yeah, I think that's... I think that's about it. That's a good place to stop, perhaps. But again, you know, he was a normal being at one point that was happy, that worshipped God, had a job in heaven. Um, it was in the very presence of God. And if somebody like that, with a full knowledge of God, can turn a walk away, how much more important is it that we guard our hearts and minds? Because we can wander off the same way. For various reasons, we'll do that. But it's just something to consider. Um, he doesn't, you know, Satan doesn't have our best interests at heart. And he's going to try to, you know, get you in any way you can. And there's this tug of war that's going on behind the scenes for your soul. Who are the people around you that are echoing the thoughts of Satan? They're taking you down a path that makes it seem like, you know, sin is good, it's freedom, you don't need God's law, it's bondage, um, you know, doing whatever sinful desire that comes through your heart or mind, uh, that's happiness. Are there people around you that are, you know, painting that kind of picture? Where do you maybe have to start reconsidering what you're allowing into your life and into your mind? Um, just something that's, I think, important to consider. All right, with that, let's leave it for tonight and go ahead and uh, think on some of those things. All right, you're going to love this last section of this podcast. We're going to look at Zechariah 3. That's the book of the Bible just before the New Testament. So just before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's, it's the last little book of the Old Testament. And again, it's a prophetic book. So there's... Uh, a lot of visions and things like that. And um, again, you don't have to understand every little piece of every verse to come away with the gist of the story and to get a lot out of a passage. Just let yourself learn from the passage. And every time you come back to it, um, you're going to get more out of it. But again, never read the Bible without praying for God to lead you. Um, you don't want you to be going into this with your own carnal heart and thought and your own you know, what little wisdom that you've got. You need the Holy Spirit to guide you. So uh, Zechariah 3, it's just a, a stunning passage. In this vision that Zechariah is given, it says in, in verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel is capitalized because um, this is Jesus. Um, Jesus is often portrayed as uh, an angel, he takes the form of an angel sometimes. He's also the archangel, just meaning not that he's an angel, but the, he's the head of the angels. Um, often the Bible will call him archangel, just meaning head of it, head of them. So um, many passages will capitalize it when when it's obvious that even though it's using the word angel, that it really is Jesus. Other times, you know, maybe they're not quite sure and they won't capitalize it. You have to study it out and, and see what each passage is talking about. But in this case, um, he showed me G Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, in other words, Jesus, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? This is so beautiful because this argument that's taking place here, basically, if you read behind, between the lines, Satan saying, you have no right to take him. This guy's filthy, disgusting. He's a sinner just like everybody else. Okay, I don't care if he's the high priest. You know, and I know you know, what goes on in, in each person's heart of hearts, you know he's not perfect and you have no right to take him. Um, and, and despite all these accusations that Satan is apparently making, Jesus says back to him, the Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, I don't care how destroyed, I don't care how filthy, I don't care 
you know, smoke, ashes, sin, whatever symbolism, whatever truth you want to say, I'm, I'm taking him and you can't stop me. Um, it goes on. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. In other words, standing before Jesus. And he answered, and this is capitalized um, because this is Jesus speaking. Then Jesus answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away these filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. It, this is the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to say with the prodigal son story, where the if you're not familiar with that story, we'll get into it at some point, but it's a beautiful passage, and, and it's one of the stories that Jesus told to onlooking people when he was trying to explain the Father's love for the human race. And the the prodigal had said basically to the Father, I want my part of the inheritance. I want to go live it up. I don't want to stay here and serve you. Not interested. I'm out of here. And he went off, had a great time, lived it up, ended up spending all his money and was in great want and was feeding pigs in order to even, um, you know, try to survive, starving, and basically came to his senses and thought, what am I doing? I mean, even my serv the servants in my father's house eat better than this. And so he decides he's going to go back home and he, he, he composes this big you know, speech in his head, you know, he's going to go home and say, I don't deserve, you know, to, you know, to be your son anymore, but just, you know, let me be as a hired servant. And the father is looking from a long way off. He sees him coming and he, he is so happy to see his son. He's been waiting, hoping that he'd return, that he doesn't even let his son finish. He, he's, he commands them to bring the best robes and put them on them and bring a ring and, and you know, the symbol of acceptance in the family and authority as, 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 as one of the sons. And he clothes him with his own rich robes. Jesus was telling that story all over again, basically that he had told or given to um, Zechariah in vision. God will say it multiple ways. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care. I just want you to come back. And so he says, take away his filthy clothing. I will clothe you with rich robes. It is just almost word for word the same story because it's God's telling that story all through history. It's the same story that he said in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned and they're hiding from him and they tried to clothe themselves. They, they, they were naked before and they weren't ashamed, the Bible says. But after they sinned, they felt embarrassed, you know, to be in each other's presence and in God's presence. And when God came walking in the in the cool of the day to visit with them, like he normally did, apparently, they hid from him. And they had tried to sew together fig leaves to cover themselves up. And God clothes, clothes them. He takes, he obviously kills an animal, first sacrifice, um, showing them it's going to be me that's going to pay this price in order to to clothe you with these clothes of righteousness. But he's been saying this story from day one. I clothe you. There's nothing you can do to make yourself pretty. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable in my eyes. I don't care what you've done. I'm willing to forgive you. He goes on um, in verse five. Uh, apparently, Zechariah um, jumps in here at, at this point and says, you know, because he's standing by watching all of this and, and, you know, this scene take place. And he says, then, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. And then verse six, then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. In other words, it's not once saved, always saved. I know that's a popular idea out there among some churches, and I know it's, yeah, it'd be happy, happy, great if if <laughs> once I um, accept God, I could never sin, never could fall away from him. But 
that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible warns us over and over again, guard your heart. Why? Because you can wander off from God again. And so he says to Joshua, you know, I've basically, I've clothed you with righteousness. I've set you free from your, you know, your sins and your past. I've cleansed you. Walk in my ways. And God would not command something that you can't do. And he's not saying do it in your own strength. He's just saying it's one of the privileges and freedoms of the gospel is victory over sin. I've given you that ability. If you keep your eyes on me, walk closely, feed on me, drink my, you know, my blood, eat my flesh is a couple of symbols Jesus used when he was talking to people. Basically saying, you know, he, he, the Bible likens Jesus to the water of life, um, the bread of life, uh, the many different symbols that basically says, you know, for us to feed on God, you know, rehearse, think about him. Uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 6 that is uh, one of my favorites, and it basically commands us when we go in when, and when we go out and we stand up and when we sit down, um, talk about it rehearse it, put it on your doorposts, write it everywhere, keep it in front of you. Basically rehearse, 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 you know, God's law, his faithfulness, his goodness, um, you know, keep him in front of you. Eat. And that's why I say, don't just skim through these presentations, slow down, read through these passages again, and look for the love of God in each of them. Ask yourself, why did he give me this passage? Why did he bother to show me what Satan did? This war in heaven, the thoughts of Satan's heart. Why did he, you know, give this section here where he doesn't just, you know, free him and forgive him, but he, he says, be careful, walk faithfully, walk in my ways, you know, stew over a passage. So anyway, um, there's that section, and I want to jump to just one other verse quickly. Uh, the second to last uh, book of the Bible, Jude, it's only one chapter. It's just before Revelation. In verse 9, you've got that same war going on. Um, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what I want to bring up is the fact that this isn't a one-time event where Satan's accusing you or disputing for you. Now, in this case, this was after Moses had died, and apparently, um, well, it's not apparent. It's actually, you know, you can know for sure that, that Jesus raised, um, God raised Moses from the dead because He's one of the two that appeared to um, to him when when Jesus was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we'll go into that some other time. But um, Moses was raised up to show that uh, God has the power to raise people from the dead. And Enoch, pre-flood, was who walked so closely with God that God just took him uh, without seeing death. There's in every way possible, God was trying to encourage the people from very early on that death is not the end of things. Um, there is a there's a, a just reward for both being good and evil. Um, there is, you know, a, an eternal life. It, it's not like lights out forever. Um, but anyway, when Moses died and was buried, at some point, God raised him from the dead and Satan had a problem with that and was trying to prevent it, saying, you you have no right to him. He's not perfect. He sinned. It's true. Moses did sin. But even though Moses had sinned, the sum total of his life was one of, I want you, God. It doesn't matter if we fail him. He's faithful to forgive us, the Bible says. So, but my, but again, back to the point, the point is, Satan is there to accuse you to God and dispute the fact that you have no right to eternal life, but he's also doing that in your mind. You have you don't deserve heaven. You've done too many things wrong. You shouldn't even attempt to look into spiritual things. God doesn't want you. You're a mess. 
he'll tell you he's got a record to play in each person's mind. Some are more torturous, some are more, you know, subtle, but he's he's disputing and trying to prevent you from getting to heaven. He's trying to do everything in his power to keep you from getting there. So when when you hear those types of things in your mind, you're no good, you're never going to make it, remember that there is one that's wanting, um, There's God wants to rebuke Satan's thoughts in your mind. And that's why you need to store yourself um, full of these, these stories so that you understand who your defense is. It's not you. You, you, you can, psychology has its place. There's a lot of great principles that we can learn in these, in, in, you know, the various education and disciplines out there, but you can meditate all you want. You can, you know, sing and count your blessings. You can do a lot of good things that you can do out there, but bottom line is Jesus wants to fight your battle. He wants to, um, to take away your filthiness he wants to rebuke Satan. He wants to say, no, 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 whatever thoughts you're listening to, don't listen. I'm willing to give you a clear conscience, a new future, a path to walk in that's um, safe. And, you know, again, Psalms 23, if you want a good p passage to read, it's just really beautiful because uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is what David had come to understand about God. His experience was, I get it. I understand. God wants to lead me in, in a rich, luxurious Christian experience. In, in green pastures and beside still waters, Picture all the most beautiful places you've ever seen in the world. That is spiritually what he wants to give to you. So we're going to stop, you know, for now um, there. But in there's so much more that the Bible talks about, about good angels, bad angels, and, the you know, the war in heaven. There's so many different passages we could dig into. And we'll, we'll you know, get snippets of it all along the way. But... That's the basic concept of, of the war in heaven and what they're doing and that there really are a lot of beings and um, they're affecting our lives and we have to be careful to guard our hearts and minds so that we don't get, um, you know, subtly taken away from God. All right. Awesome. I just love these topics. I hope you do too. And again, if you have questions... Um, I don't know too much about podcasting yet and Anchor, but it, apparently you can record questions and I will be able to apparently listen to them and answer them. So if you want to try that, go right ahead and we'll have some fun uh, digging into things a little bit more. All right. God bless.